Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Josh Peacock. This is the third in my series of recent talks on the topic of martial arts and martial arts pedagogy and play and ecological dynamics. And um, Josh is the host of the Combat Learning Podcast himself, where he's applying an ecological dynamics approach or a constraint-led approach to understanding martial arts pedagogy. He's also been a, um, a Taekwondo instructor and will be opening his own Taekwondo school soon. And he has trained in many other martial arts as well. So he's particularly focused on how you can apply these constraint-led approach to Olympic Taekwondo but he has an interest in combat sports in general and um, self-defense and everything involved. So I particularly wanted to speak to him after meeting him on Rob Gray's Perception Action podcast, where we had a, an episode along with Sean Mishka and Scott Sievright, who was on last week um, and talked about ecological dynamics in MMA. And one of the things that was really intriguing to me about Josh's perspective was how much it seemed to be informed by a deep historical analysis of the rise of martial arts pedagogy. So I wanted to reach out to him because that's a particular interest of mine. And I have some ideas and things that I've read that have given me a, an overarching narrative of how these things have happened, but there's some details that I'm not as aware of. And I wanted to, to just kind of see Josh's perspective on this. And so we go really deep into the history of the martial arts, particularly the Japanese martial arts, um, but also talking a little bit about the parallel developments in Europe, um, a little bit about the Chinese martial arts and how it, they influenced everything in Asia, all the way to the military. And then we talk about the rise of the UFC and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and how that has revolutionized our understanding of martial arts pedagogy, but also how what that revolution is might not be fully understood even in the martial arts community yet and how an ecological dynamics approach or constraint-led approach can help make what's making the best martial arts um, even better than they currently are. So it's a super fun conversation. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Without further ado, Josh Peacock. Josh, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's great to have you. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to, to talk. Yeah, so we, we just recently met uh, via Rob Gray's podcast. We had a conversation with Rob and Scott Sievright and um, Sean Mishka about, you know, the constraints-led approach and ecological dynamics uh, applied to martial arts. So I've been thinking about that from my perspective as kind of a general movement person for a while. And I was, it was really fun for me to meet you and Scott and just realize there were actually people really in the industry who are, who are starting to pick up on this stuff. 
Um, in particular, I was I was really intrigued uh, to talk to you because of some of the stuff you started talking about about the history of martial arts. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think I'm I'm becoming aware of some of the stuff that you're aware of, and I have some of the same perceptions of how it probably played out. Uh, but it seems like you have a little bit more depth of knowledge there, so I think that'll be super fun to dig into. But before we get into all that stuff. I'd love to have you just kind of introduce yourself to the audience. What is your your martial arts background and how did you get involved in in thinking about skill acquisition from a motor learning perspective? And, you know, what are you doing right now within the martial arts? Yeah, so um, I started in uh, Taekwondo in uh, way back in Winter Park, Florida, many years ago, probably I think the year 2000. So it's been a little while now. Um, I did that for close to five years before uh, doing a little bit of Shaolin Kung Fu for a while. Um, after I did Shaolin Kung Fu, I did a little bit of American Kempo for about a year. Um, and in, um, Tracy. Okay. Do you know the Tracy? Not as Kempo? well. Yeah. But yeah. So tr- they were, they were some uh, Ed Parker students, very uh-huh. significant Ed Parker students actually. Okay, cool. Um, and so they have their, their style, their style is the more sweeping, uh, they have all the sets that Ed Parker had, whereas when, as Ed Parker aged, he got rid of the self-defense sets he used to do. He consolidated mm-hmm. them. The Tracy's didn't really like that. So they kept everything that he put together. Um, that's the weird internal distinction between the two. Okay. Um, I could talk about that forever too, yeah. but, uh, um, yeah, while I was at the American Kimball place, I also did some boxing and some kickboxing and some sport karate. Um, and, uh, even a little bit of Filipino, he had all kinds of stuff going on. Um, and then after that, I, I went back to, um, more Taekwondo training, a lot of self-training really, cause I was moving from Florida to Charlotte and kind of in and out of not really having access to places to train. Um, but I got back into, um, uh, I got into teaching Taekwondo and I was teaching that for a while. And while I was doing that, I also, uh, got into Brazilian jujitsu. Um, and that's something that I've continued to do for on and off for the last, um, I'd say six years. Uh, so Taekwondo is the, the, the big through line. Um, I also have, you know, that, that karate and, and a little bit of Kung Fu too. Um, but that is my, that is my martial arts background. As far as how I got into skill acquisition from a martial arts, um, perspective i remember hearing the term motor learning uh i don't remember where probably listening to a podcast or something so i knew that there was something out there there was a scientific discipline for learning how to learn movement better and how to teach movement better so when i was teaching martial arts um you know the first time i started was way back when i when i first learned taekwondo i was an assistant instructor i was like a volunteer and so back then i didn't really you know, I wasn't, I was listening to whatever the training I got from my, my Taekwondo master and my instructors. Uh, but when I started teaching professionally on me, on my own, um, I started running into these problems with the traditional program. Things didn't work the way I expected them to work. Um, the kids, it, it was harder to keep the kids interests than I remember being when I was learning. And so there's a lot of notions that you get from watching Kung Fu movies that were broken for me. <laughs> like you're not going to have the kids sitting, sitting in for 10 minutes in a horse dance. Right. So it's yeah. not, 
not going to happen. <laughs> um, so I, I started to get I'm, interested. How is a why, better way to approach this? <laughs> that's why Miyagi only has one student, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only kid in town will do, uh, do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's exactly that's exactly the case like even before I should have known before that because I try to teach some French it's not a good idea don't try to teach peer, friends that are peers with you yeah. um, but uh, I tried to teach some of them I was like this is real martial arts you're gonna have to sit in the horse stance for five minutes and do your punches and whatever and then we'll do something else and they weren't interested in that they were interested in getting the uh, foam sticks and whacking at each other uh, that should have been a clue to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it should have been a clue to me, um, but it wasn't. So that's the uh, the traditional dogma, how powerful a hold it has on your psyche. And uh, so, yeah, I started getting looking at just online articles and stuff like that. And uh, at the time, I was I had just graduated with a bachelor's degree, and I was going to do a master's degree, and I was going to try and pursue. Um, being an uh, uh, English writing, a first-year writing instructor. I had it niched down all the way to first-year writing, first-year writing instructor and community college. That was what I was going to do. So I went back for a master's degree in teaching and learning, a master of education, and uh, with a focus in English. And um, during the course of that, I fell in love with educational psychology and um, a lot of the issues around teaching and learning. And uh, I ended up, um, ended up doing overall a lot better on those courses than I did on my English courses, um, just because I was just, you know, I had been writing and, and, and stuff like that and reading for most of my life. So th- that stuff wasn't, you know, wasn't novel. And I was just much more interested in this educational psychology stuff. So uh, I started to apply that back to what I was doing in teaching and, um, uh, eventually I just wasn't super satisfied with academic notions of teaching and learning and how that mapped on to, um, to teaching martial arts. And so I was just searching and searching and searching until I stumbled upon, um, like Rob Gray stuff. And, uh, I think the very first thing I saw was, uh, Trevor Reagan, I think is his name that with uh, train ugly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's learner lab now, but back then it was train ugly. And I saw the blocked versus random practice and that yeah. that's what got the gears moving. And um, I, not long after that, I, I found Dr. Rob Gray and was just, my head was spinning. I didn't know what he was talking about in the podcast, but I listened to them each podcast, like three separate times, not an exaggeration, three separate yeah. times. <laughs> and enough. it began to set in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's. Yeah, it was so funny to be on Rob's podcast because it was like, you know, yep. he's he's such a source from which I'm pulling the very insights which I'm being asked to to yeah. offer, right? Um, so that was that was a pleasure. Um, yeah, for me, uh, I I started with, you know, for I, I guess I probably talked about this a little bit on that podcast, but it was really an, an organic evolution where I I think parkour inherently is kind of constraints led and because it's it's basically self-organized right it's the self-organized learning culture that's spread across the world and so then we try to formalize it and teach it and we had a lot of success in certain ways but when i took it from the gym environment to teaching in nature mm-hmm. there was this 
this realization that a lot of what I constructed to instruct in order to sort of help people with skill acquisition was actually not necessary. Mm. And that there was this, there was something emergent from just the exposure of the athlete to an environment and a task, mm -hmm. which started developing the, the, the skill. Um, and, you know, like block versus random practice, you know, I think, you know, people are in my audience probably are somewhat familiar with these ideas. It's always useful to, to kind of review that. Mm -hmm. Parkour is basically mostly practiced randomly. There's not a lot of black block practice. Yeah. yeah. So tell me your understanding of a, a, what a blocked versus a random practice is. And then I, I'm curious what you, how you would see that playing out specifically within the martial arts context. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because um, the uh, blocked and random practice formats seem to be more conducive to uh, sports where you can practice with clear, uh, trials, for example, shooting a free throw yeah. or, um, really even more conducive to that would be uh, baseball hitting. Yeah. Um, and so my, my understanding of block practice is that you, uh, you try to throw the free throw the same way every time and get it into the basket from the same position that is block practice. And you, and you, and it's also typically paired with masked practice where you do it just lots, lots, and lots, lots of repetition, uh, random practice or randomized practice would be where you shoot from different locations, whether it's from a different angle and from different, um, distances from the hoop. And, uh, that, that would be random practice. And, and that would also be conducive to maybe shooting with different technique, but I don't know that that's necessarily stipulated in random practice, but um, random practice would be conducive to that as well, because you're, you're moving from all these different places. So you would be naturally inclined to shoot slightly different every time. Um, for martial arts, how that maps onto martial arts, you have to be careful because you can set up, for example, in jujitsu, you can set up drills that uh, are variable from trial to trial. So you can set up a sequence of just random guard passing drills, but they're not very alive and they're not, the feedback is not uh, recursive as I like to call it. So you don't, um, it, the, the, it's utility is, is kind of limited because, you know, like with baseball, that's really how the sports play. You know, you have the pitcher, you throw it and you hit it. And uh, you go to the, or you miss, and then you try it again. And that's, that's how the sports actually played. So there's actual ender trials. Um, but in, in uh, martial arts, you don't, you don't do a trial and then, you know, <laughs> try again. It's you, it goes back and forth. There's an exchange that continues to happen until somebody is submitted or knocked out or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that's my understanding of, of the whole thing. I, I think that that probably something more like all these concepts are related to one another. I think martial arts practice would be more like um, uh, variable practice or um, open ended. Or I, I'm reaching for the for the word. I know I've probably seen a concept somewhere, a term somewhere that's more accurate. But yeah, I mean, I think. If you take a classic like karate class or taekwondo class in your case, yeah, and you have all the students lined up doing, you know, a, a front punch and a rear punch repeatedly. That's yeah. a very good example of a blocked practice. Yeah. 
um, or, you know, like a classic that you'll get in, like in a lot of jujitsu schools that I've done is at the beginning of the training, you'll do like 10 arm bars, 10 triangle chokes, 10 omoplatas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's basically <laughs> right. Yeah. That's I how mean, that concept maps onto martial arts. It's amazing how completely <laughs> useless that is in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Just, like if you go and you, if you're like, if you're, if you're warming up with a blue belt or a brown belt doing arm bars, it's the laziest, least connected, mm-hmm. least attended to thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some mapping of the mechanics of the skill that's happening there. Yeah. But like they're racing through that to get done, to be able to do something that actually is yeah. at all engaging and intriguing. Right. That'd be an example I give like, and then like from a, from like my perspective as an ex gymnast, you know, then parkour, it's like, what's fascinating about parkour is how much of it is literally just play behavior. It's like, yep. you go out into your environment and you're like, oh, that jump looks interesting. And then you do the jump until it's not interesting, or you do the jump until there's something you can connect to the jump that's interesting, right? So like, I'm going to do that jump and I'm going to do a flip. And okay, I land the flip and yeah. then I'm going to descend down this next thing. Um, and like, I think that the majority of most parkour athletes training is literally just open-ended play. Like it's completely self-organized. You may have some vague goals, like I'm going to work on this type of skills or I'm going to work on this class of skills, or maybe even these principles, this sort of feeling in my body, but mostly you're just finding challenges and trying them out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in a martial arts context, like, like a series of sparring rounds is pretty much random practice. Right. It's, yeah. you know, obviously there's some structure, but you could be going into that sparring in every round, you could be exploring a different set of skills and you're lo- working with a different dynamic environment with the, with the athlete in front of you, if you're working with different athletes. Yeah. So that, I, I, th- I think that you have to do translation from random practice as it comes out of the research, because it's because, because in the research, it's more like a practice schedule. Yeah. For the, for the session, right. Yeah. It, this is the, this is the, the way that the, um, the drill or the, or the, um, session schedule is set up. Whereas with, with martial arts, you have to actually, you have to stay within an exchange instead of, you know, you have rounds, right. And that's how I would translate it. Rounds is your trial difference. Um, but you, there's more going on that you have to watch out for within within martial arts because if if you try to do it exactly clean from the the basketball version Mm -hmm. uh you're not going to have enough variability there enough instability there to actually create those problems and continue to try and find and solve those problems in my opinion yeah i'm I'm not i'm not 100 sure they're that different because like baseball um at least the batting aspect of baseball is a Mm -hmm. dyadic interaction where two people have opposing goals and are, you know, they're, they're self-organizing behavior. And the same thing is yeah. all the time in, in football and basketball. So, yeah. right. I could be working on my shot in a block practice form. I'm going to do 20 uh, free throws, 20 three pointers from the corner, 23 pointers from, you know, from the elbow, right. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, or I could 
play one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, right? We could even like look at something like, I'm just gonna play, we're just gonna do post, right? And, and we're just working on the post. Like that's all, that's all mo- basically sparring from a, mm-hmm. like, from a martial arts perspective. So I think, I wonder how well that's captured in the, in, in what's talked about as random practice. I'd have to go and look at the literature, but maybe when they're talking about random practice, it's more like how you move through like I'm thinking of random practice, like a, like a teenager, like out in their backyard or a kid out in their backyard shooting. Right. And they just shoot the ball and they don't have a plan for where they're going to shoot or how often mm-hmm. they shoot. They're just like, I feel like doing a, a three pointer now and now I'm going to go do a layup. Now I'm going to try to dunk. Right. Yeah. That's essentially like a random skill practice. Right. But then something like actually playing one-on-one even a, like a constrained game of one-on-one that's maybe like a continuous variable practice mm-hmm. that might be the way that's represented in the literature. Yeah. You're yeah. So you, you brought up the fact is dyadic. I think I'm probably not expressing myself clearly enough on this. My concern is that, um, cause you brought up karate. That's actually a good example. So you could have something where you do one steps and every single time you do a one step, now that that inner that that exchange is discrete and it's more not not it's it's less variable than than like a pitch but it's discrete like a pitch where there's a there's a clear beginning and an end that's that happens fairly quickly and you can do some you could you could set up a random practice i think where you do one steps from different positions and totally different one steps every single trial um but that that type of practice would be not as conducive to actual um, even karate, even points yeah. sparring and karate would probably not even be conducive to that. Can you describe, um, what one step sparring is in like the Taekwondo karate context? Right. So in, um, the one step sparring is basically one exchange of a punch or a kick. And, uh, so some, some person initiates, uh, the one party initiates like a punch or a kick and the second party will respond with one or one or two techniques. Um, and uh, those techniques can come in multiple steps. So how many steps you move is usually whether it's one, two or three steps. Um, but most people just do like more of like a one, one step. Um, and it, it goes in a, an agreed upon sequence. So it's scripted mm-hmm. and uh, the techniques are not done with a, technique that looks like um what you would find in the sport aspect of it like sport karate or sport taekwondo it's done from the formal standard of what a technique looks like which is more like kata or pumse yeah so it's basically like you know i'm gonna throw a front kick i know i'm gonna throw a front kick i'm gonna throw a front kick you're gonna use a specific block and respond with yep a a specific block and a punch probably which would be a real basic one step uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a, a scripted, you know, it's choreography basically. Yeah. Yeah. But you could, you could cheat, you could cheat in, uh, this is why the, the, that's why I'm working through this because my worry is knowing that my people, knowing the Taekwondo and karate community, when you give them something like random practice, um, 
uh, you can't, this sounds bad, but you can't trust them to actually do random practice. <laughs> you can trust them to do random one steps. You know, some, somebody yeah. might, somebody might do a, a genuinely random practice and another person will do randomized one steps and that'll be their version of random practice. Mm -hmm. And I know that that, that, that inclination exists in my community, which is why um, it might appear painstaking to other people or bizarre to other people. Why I, I tend to be like, being careful when I talk about random practice that for martial arts, we have to, we have more things to worry about to make it uh, representative, which is another term yeah. um, than simply the fact that it's in a random order or in a random sequence. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking, I, I'm kind of thinking about the, the, the discreteness aspect, right? So yeah. I think there's a, there's a scale of that. Like, and, and there's this idea of a free flow sport. Like yeah, soccer in general is more free flow than mm -hmm. football and baseball is maybe the least free flow of those. Right. So you're the average sort of pitch is the pitcher throws and then the batter takes. Right. And there right. You know, it's like the ball was thrown and somebody caught it. Right. And then, and then the batter swings some of the time, and a lot of times that's fouled, fouled off, right? Um, but unless the ball is put in play, there's just generally just, you know, it's, it's, you know, has a very clear beginning and end. Once it goes into play, then you have random, you know, you have uh, the random element. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then there's a clear end to that play when the batter either is safe on base or is put out. Mm -hmm. And then in football, you have when the when does the when is the athlete down right and so that creates a uh, that creates a a discreteness to each play which makes it more like like a kind of like a one step or like a point sparring mm -hmm. whereas uh say wrestling well wrestling's a little weird because there's you can collect points and there's a lot of like little random reshoots but something like you know, submission grappling is essentially pure free flow, like even yeah. free flow than, than soccer, which has penalty kicks, which is a set play. So there's a, there's an important, uh, there's important access of kind of understanding different practice. I also think like, I've been thinking about this recently. We, you know, in my context, we work with with a lot of students who have no martial arts background who may even be very intimidated by martial arts. Right. So how do we introduce this in a way that's going to be really friendly and allow them to, to experience it and right away get into aliveness? Because we're, you know, I'm not interested in, in trying to teach a lot of super technical information to people who might not even invest in this and, you know, kind of our expertise is in play anyways. It's like if they want super good technique, it's like go see John Donahue or Ludwig or somebody like this, right? <laughs> um, and one thing we've been playing with is that actually we're starting to think that um, that a weapon is the best way to start learning to strike, like a foam sword. Hmm. And one of the reasons is because uh, it's actually easier to study the dynamics of an interaction because the time the 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 length of a beat of action is longer, hmm. right? The time it takes for you to advance into measure and strike and retreat out of measure is much longer. 
and it's and it is inherently more potentially discreet especially if you respect the idea of like uh, like you when you're when you're punching right and grappling with somebody you'll you'll sometimes take a punch in order to receive a punch or to, to give a punch right mm-hmm. but you can't really do that with a live sword in an unarmed combat situation like you're not going to be like okay yeah he you know he chopped off my arm but i killed him it's all good <laughs> <laughs> yeah (laughs) even even with a foam sword it doesn't hurt hurt but the feedback is unpleasant enough there's a psychological that you don't want to get hit yeah yeah Yeah. so you get you get a a different dynamic around that but it is it is kind of it lends itself to a little bit more discreteness one of the things that that we think is actually problematic in in um, kickboxing sparring is people become too discreet in the sparring context Hmm. land and then retreat because you don't actually want to yeah. friend. So once you've landed a strike that would be effective in a self-defense situation, your automatic reaction is to flip from antagonistic to cooperative and make sure that your friend is, is safe, which is important, but we're actually conditioning the wrong kind of response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's a problem I've had ongoing with Taekwondo sparring is, and um, point point karate, which I like, uh, it, it's not representative of, of Olympic Taekwondo, which is what I, I teach, but um, I like sport karate because that's where I started with Taekwondo that we did the same rule set. And um, it's great, really great for anyone, and, but especially great for kids because it's light contact and you're, you're trying to move in and get that shot really quick. And then if you get the point, you reset and you do it again, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that could be random. That could be definitely random. Um, and it's definitely there. It's definitely variable, but the, the problem is exactly as you said it, that incentivizes, and I guess this is naturally emergent anyways, but it really internalizes this idea of once you've scored the point, that's it. Whereas in Olympic tech, well, no, you're going to give up, you're going to give up points because it's continuous. Yeah. And if you don't continue to follow up, you could forfeit, you could have scored three or four points. Potentially you could have won the match on, on placing yeah. someone in that position and capitalizing on it. So karate has the one hit, one kill rule, right? Like, yeah. Is that specific to Shotokan where they really talk about that? Or is that a more general thing? Uh, I believe it started in Okinawa. Okay. There's a, ja- I'm trying to remember the Japanese phrase. I don't remember the Japanese phrase, but there's a phrase for one hit, one kill that they used to use. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's actually literal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it's come to be understood that way. <laughs> yeah. So, so in, in any event, that's actually, that's the correct attitude for a sword fight, right? Right. Like in a sword fight, your, <clears throat> your, your first task is don't get, don't get um, disabled, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, you know, if you're unarmed and you have live blades um, unarmored, then like one hit had, one good hit is going to end the fight generally. Yeah. So that's an interesting, this is how Kendo has an influence on Shotokan um, in a way that uh, Judo doesn't because sparring in Okinawa before uh, sport karate emerges in Japan and Okinawa, they, they began to adopt those rules as well, but guys would put on uh, Bogu armor, which is the armor that, um, kendo and even before kendo uh 
anyone training in Kenjutsu sword, sword martial arts would wear to spar in. They would just put that stuff on. And you see Miyagi puts on the, the big, the big mitts and the, yeah. the umpires thing. That's kind of reminiscent of that um, in, in the Karate Kid show. They would put that on and they would hit each other hard. Mm-hmm. And um, that was more continuous in nature. And then you get sport karate and sport karate is, uh, you know, Gichin Funakoshi is, is highly influenced by, by the pedagogy of, of Jigoro Kano, but he's also, um, he's not the one who created everything about Shotokan. His, his son, I believe his first name was Gijo or Gigo or something like that. And his, um, one of his star students who wrote the best karate book series I have on my I'm trying to remember his name. What is his name? I can see it from here. Uh, Nakayama. <laughs> Nakayama. They're the ones that actually really built out what Shotokan looks like today. And they're the ones that really fleshed out the, the really smooth looking JKA, Japan Karate Association, sport karate sparring of the, of the 60s and 70s. And they were influenced by um, the kendo, where you can have exchanges, but as soon as that something is sco- a point is scored, yeah. you you reset and 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 uh, go to another try like this and, <laughs> and step right, up. right, right. You have to get that contact, and then if they fall down, you have to go. <laughs> like you clutched them on the ground you don't even have to be close to them you just have to do the motion <laughs> but uh that yeah kendo it's funny because the sword the actual sword fighting sport influenced that that discreet style of sparring with sport karate that's kind of uh, how that that comes to me so this is kind of the the other like we we sort of got ahead of ourselves in talking kind of deeply about the, the, the ecological dynamics and that yeah. understanding of, of how we, we really structure practice. But that, the other aspect of this that I really wanted to get into you with you was the, the history of the martial arts. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I guess we're, we're, we're operating in the post-UFC era. Mm-hmm. And the, I feel like the, the lesson of the UFC is still, you know, the, it's still making waves throughout the, uh, the, um, the martial arts community and it's still not fully understood. And I think mm-hmm. you would agree with me that, that um, the like jujitsu revolutionized martial arts, yeah. but it's, it doesn't fully understand exactly the thing that made it successful even. Yeah, I would, I would say it exactly in those terms. They, they know that they're better, but they don't understand why. <laughs> so, so, and I think that, you know, one of the things that came up in our conversation was that we both think that traditional pedagogies in martial arts are not particularly effective motor learning strategies. And we also both think that they're also not particularly traditional. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, just for a second, I would love to hear you describe what you see as the kind of broad description of, of traditional, right? Like when someone compares modern combat martial arts sport to traditional, what is it that they're saying when they mean traditional? Like what, what is that? What is that? And then we'll get into like how that came to be. 
Yeah. So the traditional martial arts program, as most people understand it, as most people practice, especially in the USA, this is a, um, I dare to say, you know, I, somebody might check me on this eventually. I want to say it's modernistic. Yeah, um, I agree. 100%. It, 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 the, like in the philosophical sense, um, it is a mass uh, industrial um, military-esque method of producing carbon copy athletes um, or learners, whatever. And the, the view is predicated on a, a really a view of physical education that is at least 200 years old. It's not, it's almost pre motor learning literature. I think motor learning becomes a discipline of its own in the late 1800s. Yeah. Well, let me, let me reflect back to you, what I'm hearing and, and kind of the way I think it, I think you, I think you know more details about this, but I want to, I want to, as I kind of see it. So when you say modernist, like what does modernist mean? Like modernism is say the, the enlightenment philosophy of rationality that arises yes. um, that arises in some sense with industrialization. Yeah. So you have a rejection of a sort of um, supernaturally infused worldview and you have the rise of a world that is more and more influenced by our conceptualization of machines, right? Mm -hmm. We have all this power through the development of machines, through steam power and clockwork. Yeah. And, and we can see how you can put mechanisms together mm -hmm. and we start then believing in this sort of like, essentially like everything is these almost mechanical uh, causal relationships. Yeah. And, and then there's this effort in many different places to modernize things, to make them rational, right? Rational, if we go back to the Greek words of it is like to divide it up into pieces right to ratio it right and 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 i like i i would love to do more research on this but i think a lot of physical practice really specifically comes out of the german gymnastics and swedish gymnastics traditions and those are really attempts to rationalize the approach to the cultivation of the human body so that it's like a factory production Mm -hmm. So then, you know, yawn and these guys, and, and that goes down and, you know, there are counter movements in some sense, like if you look at Georges Hebert and uh, Methode Naturale, like there's this idea that you don't actually have to use a super rational approach in order to create a great athlete. They happen naturally in these environments where they have nature. And so you have this sort of naturalism that comes back in with Hebert. But if you look at Hebert, he, he has everyone doing Swedish gymnastics too, mm -hmm. right? And so if you look at that and all, you know, Swedish gymnastics is like, it's like aerobics, right? It's like everybody stands in a line and moves their yep. arms in specific ways and yep. their legs in specific ways to explore all the ranges of motion. So my understanding is essentially, you know, when, when the West basically colonizes Asia, there's a prestige to scientism and a prestige to industrialization. Mm -hmm that impacts the way that then pedagogy is rationalized and, mm -hmm. and modernized. Um, and that's Jigaro Kano and Gishin Funakoshi. And this is where I, I don't have as many details as you, but 
I'm curious if that all accords with with your understanding and if you can give me some more details on how you see that process playing out in Japan. Yeah. And yeah, I think also China. Yeah, and Korea too. China, yeah. Okay, Korea well, let's start with Japan. Fun. <laughs> Korea's fun. Um with with Japan uh with Jigoro Kano, he was educated in a western institution for for some time. I don't remember which one it was. He knew he was a fan of of John Dewey. Okay. Who created the um, not created, but uh, really his his thoughts are are the basis of what we now consider the the um, you know the modern public school. So, um, not everything about Dewey is actually bad. He he wanted to build a pedagogy around problem solving, but his pro- that's problem solving within an industrial sort of you know process, and um, so. Jigoro Kano is actually not the only Japanese person that was big on that. So this was an imported into the school system in Japan. Um, and uh, there, there are pictures of, of Dewey, you know, with, with friends and acquaintances in Japan um, all over. And uh, th- so there, there is that influence um, that trickles down into the, the, uh, these um, uh, structured physical education programs integrated into schools right this is a this is a program that's already big in 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 america that they're pushing for and that's that's been happening with physical culture in the united kingdom um and uh so japan wants to japan wants to culture a spirit of its own in its children through these physical education programs in institutions and um, John Dewey definitely, and, and those that 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 line of thinking definitely has an influence on the pedagogy of Kodokan, which in turn was a titan in influencing the other combat sports, especially sport, uh, sport karate, and um, even even more broadly, um, just the whole traditional karate in Taekwondo program. Um, okay. I do think you find people lined up and practice that kind of stuff. You do find that stuff in military in Asia before any sort of uh, quote unquote colonization, but, or cross, I would call it cross pollinization, but um, before the West comes in and, and really pollinates the, the, the pedagogical landscape, you do still find that just because that's kind of how things work with the military. You have a lot of people yeah. and you're trying to teach them, um, moves before you can before they can do war games and things like that yeah well i mean it's it's it very much changes in the military context because you you actually um coordination of motion across multiple people is very important in a military context right traditional like uh you know if you're if you're a british uh soldier in you know the revolutionary war you know crimean war like you're um you need to fire when you're told to fire you need to load when you're told to load you need to do it in sync with everybody else in the line right you need to charge when you're told to charge yep um it's not it's not there's it's not as much about individual uh problem solving right Right more yeah. about about the power of coordinated action 
So like Steve Morris, I think I've mentioned to you as somebody who I really appreciate. And he often puts up these posts of like, you know, a bunch of people doing wushu in a park. And he's like, oh, these people are all brainwashed. <laughs> and maybe mm. they are to some degree. But I think he, 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 doesn't he doesn't recognize the historical roots of that, that, that if you, you want to move a block of 100 men around in a battlefield and not expose your flanks um, or get disorganized, that mm -hmm. being able to do some kind of complex choreography together um, that's relevant to battle is, is, is super important. Um, so there's a, there is some difference in that context. There, there's a, there's a, there's a disparity that, so the, so with the, with the people doing all doing wushu together in a park is a little bit, I, I, it could be, you know, I don't, I don't have mastery of Chinese martial arts history. It could be a little bit anachronistic, in, in the terms of with Wushu being brought back as a reconstruction effort after communist China basically almost decimated uh, Chinese culture and, and um, authentic Kung Fu is, is almost destroyed at that point. Um, you know, there's always been that, that element in military training. We have manuals. I have one up on the, uh, you know, of that Korea, uh, it's an ancient Korean manual that they just stole from China, right? Because we, <laughs> um, but that's always been like, there was a disparity between the way the military practice and the way individual uh, civilian martial arts practice worked, whereas civilian practice was much smaller in scale and much more individualized. Yeah. And so maybe bigger schools worked more like the military, but um, there's a lot of schools, you know, there's, there's talks of, of the way um, Itman, Bruce Lee's teacher, the way his, his, uh, his little school used to be where it worked, it worked more like a boxing gym where you had just people in and out all day. Yeah. Working as they came and went and at, with what was available, the, a partner, uh, the dummy, mm -hmm. other material, you know, um, push hands if somebody was available or, or uh, sticky hands or whatever. Um, it, it, it seemed that at least in, in many places that that's how, civilian martial arts instruction worked as opposed to martial arts instruction from the military context is going to be much more like how we consider traditional martial arts today to be with everyone lined up um you know doing things in a row one two one two i imagine it's also very different if you're looking at i mean you have so like if you go back I think it's true in Japan and Europe, very similarly, you have the samurai class and you have the knightly class mm -hmm. and they're expected to be warriors in a very, very kind of complete sense where they're training mm -hmm. for, you know, if you read my understanding of the knightly manuals, right, they were learning acrobatics, they were wrestling all the time, they were boxing, they were jousting, they were doing all this stuff. They won prestige not only from fighting in battlefields, but fighting in tournament malaise and in um, and in joust. So they like had a, a sport element basically to their yeah. that was that was that was happening throughout. So you had this knightly class, and then you know if you're like in I think something like maybe the 13th century, 12th century uh, Europe, below that you basically have civilian levies who you throw some weapons in their hand and there and you give them a little bit of training and, and you kind of <laughs> yeah you, you hope <laughs> you hope yeah there's right. there's different levels of military 
And there's a middle class of people who can like afford some civilian martial arts training. And there's traditions of of boxing and, and stick fighting and and all that, that are, that are happening where people can go and, and learn the basics, but it's not until the later middle ages that you start getting these massed pike formations where you have professional soldiers who are not, who are not elites in society. Mm-hmm. And so you have a kind of a, I imagine that the military education of, of a knight is much more sort of individualized and much more about having a really diverse set of skills. Whereas a pikeman is really about performing well in a unit. I think it's probably, yeah. you know, I think like, if you look at like the American military now, I think it's moving much more towards like an, a knightly thing. Right. But like, mm-hmm. We, we utilize special forces so much more. We don't have like massed infantry as a regular part of, of our military engagement nearly as much. But it, something like mili- uh, infantry artillery, and I'm way outside of my scope here now. So if anyone is super military and thinks I fucked it up, let me know. But, um, but my understanding of Navy SEALs training or like special forces training is that it's very, very different from the traditional military models. Like yeah. it turns out to work for those people and their adaptability is much more like what we'd be looking for in the athletes we'd want to train or, you know, like an elite team sport athlete rather yeah. than this kind of cookie cutter battlefront um, yeah. type of situation. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding. I think it's kind of worked. That's an emergent aspect of yeah. societies, a societal constraint on working on a military training constraint where you know the predecessors of the knights would be the roman equites and um there there's there's just uh, almost everywhere around the world regardless of interaction between societies you have cavalry units being the special forces of the ancient world yeah um, whether they're, they specialize, you know, with the Mongols, like with, uh, uh, mobile archery, which is revolutionary at the time, or you have, um, people who are trained to, to wield swords and pole arms. And, uh, also they know how to shoot, you know, a bow. Yeah. Basically on, on horses, you've got, well, before there were, like, I mean, I think horse archery, horse archery goes back to at least the Scythians. Um, but I think the Mongols basically perfected it. Yeah. But if you look they at They have a special type of yeah. bow they built that was yeah. maneuverable. And yeah. Yeah. I think if you go back to like the early Roman Empire uh, uh, armies or like Hannibal's armies, they're like mm-hmm. the Numidians who are light cavalry that I think threw javelins. So yeah. they, they would throw light darts and maybe have a uh, like a like a sheaf full of them, or maybe they, they rearmed regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had this kind of light uh, projectile uh, based attack, probably even going back further than that, like cavalry or like chariots were probably mostly projectile attacks yeah. Or, yeah. or they existed to get you there and let you dismount and fight hand to hand. And then you had lancers, right? So that's, you, you're going to carry a big spear and, and smash people with it. And then you had people who fought with swords on, on, uh, on that. And that's like the, that's actually the part that I, I understand the least, like, what's the advantage? Like, why would you want the, the, the reach disadvantage of a sword? I guess once you're working with, once you're working with like mostly armored troops in the late middle, uh, middle ages, 
um, you know, then the Warhammers and the Halberds and like all the, the axes become more important because you, you know, you can't yeah, I, armor without a lot more force. I think, I think when you, the brunt, most of, of uh, a battle is going to be fought with, uh, with foot soldiers. And uh, when you're locked, when you're locked in, um, your maneuverability is, is limited, even though you're, you're, you're lightly armored, yeah. um, that you can't, I, I wouldn't underestimate the, um, the importance of a, of a short sword or something in that situation, because once you've made those initial, once you've clashed, you know, it's going to be difficult to actually lethally use a pole arm because yeah. it, you need the space. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Romans famously relied on, on their swords, right? Their short sword, yeah. gladius, but like the, the Macedonians who just conquered everybody else used the longest spears anybody had used, right? Like that was the advantage <laughs> of Phillips. Yeah. I, I think that's a broader discussion on tactics because they, the Romans had established tactics with their shields and where they would create, they would create these bottlenecks that yeah. drove people into the, and then they would get you with the, I also think the, the shield. armor discussion. I think that the, the yeah. level of armor has a huge degree to play in it. It's like, um, I don't, I don't do a lot of this, but I, I do pay attention to some of the HEMA stuff. And, and it, it's like, yeah. if you Very have an cool. unarmed, if you have an unarmed guy versus an unarmed guy and one of them has a spear mm -hmm. and they don't have shields and one has a sword, this, the shield will just, ju the spear just slaughters the swordsman. Right. It's so much faster to wield it with two hands and with the maneuverability of like having that whole butt of the spear. Plus you have the reach and it's, it's just fast and it, and it, and it threatens a huge radius. Yeah. Whereas, um, whereas once you add a shield though, the reach advantage is massively reduced. And it's the same thing once you go to full armor, right? Like you can't really offend somebody in full armor with a long sword by hitting them at, with the end of the sword. <laughs> Like yeah. You have to wrestle them with the sword half sorted in order to like poke it into a gap. Right. Um, yeah. And then that's, that's getting into the night, the night yeah. warfare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I imagine that like the, the way that you use cavalry also changes as the, as the production of high quality armor goes up. Right. So if yeah. you have, if you have an army of foot soldiers who are mostly armed in, in Gambeson, which is fabric, right? Um, that's going to change what's going to be optimal versus, you know, 200 years later, they're most, mm -hmm. they almost all have at least half armor on, right? They've got breastplate yeah. and, yeah. and helmets and the top of their body armor. So I don't know that, that that's, we're super far afield. Yeah. I, I love to yeah. about the stuff, but let's, let's the, go back for a second to, um, to, we were trying to characterize actually what is the modern, uh, the modern, the traditional frame. So, the traditional yeah. frame is, is this pedagogy that evolves from a modernist perspective and that comes from this meeting of East and West. And you talked, you said Kodakon. Can you tell me what the Kodakon is? Uh, the Kodakon is the institute started by Jigoro Kano okay, so to propagate judo. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That, Over against the, the, the jujitsu, the traditional hand to hand, traditional hand to hand styles available at that time, which mostly existed within the context of broader uh, ancient yeah. martial arts schools that taught everything. Yeah. I was reading about that recently. I was reading about the idea that the Koryu Jiu-Jitsu is itself 
kind of an artifact. It's not, it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. It's not very representative of what samurais do because the period in which that was codified was a very peaceful period in which samurais were mostly administrators. The, yeah. The reconstruction. Kind of a, Edo, I think it's Edo like or a, something. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like a, a, um, these were kind of like recreational schools for people carrying out their their idea of samurai identity more than they were actually training grounds for people who were regularly exposed to war. Yeah. So this is a, this is um. So I actually I wanna I wanna clarify that when Shotokan comes to Japan, it Jap- Japanizes and however you say it, it becomes more Japanese rather than Okinawan. Um, and there is an influence through Jigoro Kano's Dewey sort of philosophy on the training methods, but it's not as if there is no cultural precedent for a more industrial view, uh, not necessarily industrial, but kata is like, it's not just like, it's not a karate, it far precedes karate. Yeah. Far, far, it's not even originally a karate thing. It, kata is a Japanese social phenomenon. There's a kata for everything in Japan and, and with, with um, what Koryu Jiu-Jitsu, the schools and their katas, that's, that is the social, that is their way of preserving those artifacts. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not, exactly sure how samurai used to train i'm sure there was an element of kata because it's a, it's a long-standing social phenomenon but um th- surely there there it was not as um the it was not as the landscape was when Jigoro kano realized he he needed to uh change things with with the introduction of of judo because one of the things that actually in contradiction to what karate did with um their style of of sparring kano innovated with the introduction of randori which is not discrete it's um continuous and it's open-ended and it's really play-based in a way because randori is not uh uh, is not sparring it's not hard sparring it's uh, exploratory sparring in many ways more like uh, like like play fighting or dog fighting is what um jandrajevic would say yeah so um i'm tempted to go deep on the on the on the ancient history stuff but i still want to get at what what we're critiquing right um so (laughs) the identity of it (laughs) yeah um i think an established system of what will produce the ideal fighter or the ideal karateka or the ideal jujitsuka a system one system that will produce that that is repeatable and largely the same uh, regardless of the person who goes through the system the machine the process i think that's the big issue Mm -hmm. that we're we're touching on here um and it's to me i get the sense that um that traditional martial arts right which is really modern martial arts let's say um modernism modernist martial arts are kind of implicitly have an information processing model of motor control yeah by default 
Yeah. So they're, 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 they have this idea of rote repetition, building a specific motor skill, and that that's what's going to make an athlete effective. I was, um, I have an ongoing debate with one of my students about the role of kata and whether kata is actually important in martial arts. And he, mm-hmm. he quoted another author who was saying that, like, you have to create this motor pathway, right? Mm-hmm. So that it's accessible when something stressful happens. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to repeatedly do the same <laughs> thing over and over again so you have access to it. That's exactly how that doesn't work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, that's precisely the that's precisely what I, I have a problem. I, with. I I have I, I think it's there's a lot of ways in which kata is valuable. It's not that. Yeah. If we can divorce kata as a as some sort of engine, a pedagogical engine for for martial arts. Um, I think it would become more valuable in many ways because um, there, there's just, just off the top of my head, uh, there, there are some indirect benefits to um, the amount of, uh, of internal awareness it can build into you, um, kinesthetic awareness. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, so that's, an very, that's a very indirect way in which it can be helpful to you later, later on in your, um, in your journey as a martial artist who does dyadic type of you know, fighting. Um, combat sports. Um, and then there is the, there's a, as a competition, um, modality, it, it's valuable. If you want, to, it's like with gymnastics, if you want to compete in that, that's something that interests you. It's valuable in that, that respect. Um, and then it's, it's, it's valuable as a, um, as a social, um, practice, uh, in the park with, with people. Uh, there's research that I recently read that shows that it, in, that, um, that even synchronized activities like that where, or scripted rather, that are done in, in synchronicity with, um, with other people is actually increases your, your social IQ in a way, and it, it increases the bond. So there's value to it in ways that are less. Um, so uh, everything yeah. you just described to me is equally descriptive of dance. Right. And, and I've said that before in, in, uh, in, in the martial arts community, that's a dirty word to say of kata. And I don't mean it that way. Um, dance is a, is a magnificent um, social activity that's ubiquitous, is everywhere. And uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with dance, but to, mar- to a martial artist, it's to, and it's to say, uh, uh, and this is more of like an American thing, because in Okinawa, uh, dance and kata are nearly the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> They're related. I think they are, right? <laughs> but over here, it's oh, that's silly. That's yeah, not serious. It's not, um, you know. And, and I, I don't mean it that way, but uh, people take it that way. <laughs> yeah, there's something very strange about Anglo culture where where it's considered not masculine to dance nowadays, anyways. But well, I don't know. If, it, I don't know if some generations ago it was necessarily but it is now yeah i don't know when that came in um but it seems like it's been a thing for uh at least american men for quite a while uh, yeah america yeah if we're talking about outside of the english i think you know like english folk dance dancing in the 1800s is pretty standard for a man to engage in yeah. some sort of formal or folk dance but nowadays it's not especially americans yeah uh, we have our own you know, and that's, that's kind of how I, when I was, when I was younger, I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't into dancing. So I never, 
I never did the dancing thing. And for me, going up through martial arts, it was dirty to say that Kato is like dancing. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> so, but uh, now I, I, when I say that, I, I have no prejudice or animus towards it. It's, I have a, a greater understanding of how dancing works in culture and of the value, the, especially social value that that brings. It gets you moving too, right? Um, which is important. But yeah, it's when I say, you know, that it's more like dance as an activity, I don't mean it prejudicially, but, um, you know, traditional martial artists will, will often take that to, to be dirty, like a, a pot shot. Yeah. No, I don't mean it as a pot shot, though. I, I think, yeah, as you said, I think that the sooner that martial artists abandon the idea that kata is about uh, some kind of direct... I don't think that a martial artist needs to do kata at all, right? Like, no, I think you don't have to. No, that that the, the 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 performance record of American wrestling and American boxing and Muay Thai um, and Dutch kickboxing, for that matter, they all demonstrate that in the development of a combat athlete, there's no necessity for kata, right? I think there is something interesting about dance actually as an adjunct to combat training. Like I've had this conversation a few times, but like, you know, the story with Israel Adesanya, who's, you know, maybe the best striker in the UFC right now is that he never trained martial arts until he was 18 years old. Hmm. He had an extensive background in hip hop dance, hmm. walks into an MMA gym and takes a fight a week after his first class. Yep. Now he's, now he's what he is. Yeah. He dances before his performances and he showcases this, this movement. And, you know, people can check out my conversation with Simon Tacker or Marla Fiskin to go really deep into, to what dance offers the general movement athlete or the combat athlete. Um, but it is, it is not a necessary component to attuning to that environment. Yeah. That, that specific set of dynamics. There is no environment there to attune to. Yeah. In, in for, for the purpose of, of yeah. combat sports. Yeah. The way that I think about dance is actually that it is, that it's an attunement to music. It can also be an attunement to a partner and it's an attunement actually yeah. to an emotional space. There's an emotional environment that's being invoked mm -hmm. in dance. And actually yeah. that's what I think the origin of Kata is. Um, like I, I know that it's controversial and, uh, but my, my friend, Scott Park Phillips has a book, you know, uh, like possible origins, I think, about mm -hmm. the idea that the Chinese forms, which precede the Okinawan forms, which precede the Japanese forms in many ways, um, not all, but like there's this lineage of the Fujian white crane into um, into Okinawa, and then yeah. that, that, that those forms show up in in, in Japanese karate as well. Um, his claim about the, the Chinese forms is that they're they're religious, they're religious theatrical dances that they come from invoking specific Taoist spirits because Kung Fu was, you know, um, the internal martial arts in particular are basically Taoist practices. They're part of a Taoist ecology of practices. And so you're, you're moving in these very theatrical, exaggerated ways, not because, you know, standing like this is, is great martial arts stance, but because you're actually invoking, um, a narrative structure that has to do with traditional re religious practices. 
that actually makes a lot more sense to me. I think it, I think it is an extension of religious practices. There's, there's a, there's a divide in Chinese martial arts between Taoist and Buddhist martial arts. So yeah. Shaolin is, is Buddhist. The yeah. internal martial arts are, um, they are all uh, Taoist. And so the Wu, the Wu Dang, the Wu Tang yeah. or Wu Dang, um, the, the, the temple of the Wu Dang temple would be their, their institute, I guess, that, that they derive from. Yeah. Um, but there, uh, there's a, there's an intricate connection between uh, what we look at now as primarily uh, striking, but uh, back in ancient times, wrestling was in- integrated with, with uh, Kung Fu and, and um, so was, was, was weapon usage. And there's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on. There's a confluence of things going on. First of all, they're, they're using movements that, can be conducive to manipulating, for example, a staff. In Chinese martial arts, the staff and the spear are like the chief weapons. Pole arms are the chief weapons, and um, you you have you have poses that look like also like the animals. You have poses that um, that look uh, like throws, like one half of a throw that's just missing the partner, right? And these Chinese the Chinese throws are these really spectac- spectacular movements. If you ever watch Huai Jiao. Um, very different from judo. Judo is more, in many ways, compact in the way that that they do the throws. In Chinese throws, they have a different system of throwing. Um, that is, it's just it looks way different. And and if you looked at somebody doing it without the partner, it would look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But it works in the in in the context of of competition. So there's a lot going on there. Where I don't think it's. I think that 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 the religious practice is driving it in some ways, but um, I don't think it's simply a narrative. I think the, the movements are, um, they're certainly performative, but there's a fusion of, uh, of um, weapons work and wrestling that has been, this is more my, my thoughts on it, but I'm not the only one that has these thoughts that has been scrubbed from the forms themselves and so all you see is the spectacular movements um certainly not all of china is like that the southern styles are famously more sparse and practical yeah um yeah i i think i agree i don't uh i I don't think it's entirely just the religion i think there's an intersection between all these things between yeah you know how how the military and military skills are perceived in society and the use of weapons, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, um, I just ran onto this article. I, I haven't finished it yet, but it's, um, it's looking at the cross-cultural incidents of, of, of how people engage in, in, um, in martial arts. And it finds that it's, it's actually a minority of societies that have a fisticuff system. And mm-hmm. most martial arts, you, you either arrest in most system, in most societies, it seems like, for agonistic interpersonal contact combat you're, um, where you're you know you're kind of settling dominance disputes or settling internal disputes mm-hmm. you wrestle and then yeah. if it's against somebody who you you're not going to wrestle with you're going to get a stick at least or a rock or a spear right like you go in right mm-hmm. away with the weapons there's no like as you scale force you skip past the striking with your hands face 
you go right to weapons, right? And and I, yeah. like I was always surprised. I always thought it was strange, like growing up as a striking martial artist, that like it seemed like Japan didn't really have much in the way of striking um, mm-hmm. before karate. Like there were strikes in traditional jujitsu, but traditional jujitsu yeah. was much more focused on on um, on grappling. And you know, yeah. part of the argument for that is that it's not much good to punch somebody who's wearing a helmet and has a sword. Like, right. Your goal is to get the sword out of their hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think that's an interesting finding as well. So I think the, the idea that, that the martial arts were more about wrestling and about weapons from the beginning uh, is a, is an interesting frame for a lot of us who, you know, I think Westerners are really focused on, on boxing, like there's something in our culture that has become very boxing oriented um, when it thinks right. about unarmed combat. Yeah, specifically in the Anglosphere. Yeah. And very, that, very much oriented that way. There may be a kind of bias that we don't realize that we're bringing to how we conceptualize martial arts. Yeah, which is, I mean, judo, I think, came to America before karate, like by a short margin. I could be wrong on that, but karate is what exploded. Yeah, that's because we have a boxing culture. Now we had a wrestling culture too, but it was much smaller. It was not as big in the public eye. And um, the wrestling culture is much more folk level, much more local. And boxing is, you know, even my grandpa did a little boxing in high school, like everybody that when you when you talk about who knows how to fight, when you want to learn how to fight in American culture, you know, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, you went to a boxing gym. Mm hmm. That's, that's how you learn to fight. It's interesting though, because I think there's a class element to that. Boxing is a gentlemanly art. And it's essentially, I think you can view it as a kind of like sword fighting with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's like, you know, gentlemen go from dueling to boxing, but there's always this layer of, of working class people who are doing catch as catch can and, you know, breaking joints. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, in the, in the American frontier, there was uh, gougers, right? There are wrestlers who specialized in how to, how to get to the point where you could take somebody's eye out. <laughs> called, I think it was actually called rough and tumble. Like that's where. Yeah. That sounds familiar. From. Yeah. That was the, like, that was the, the, the sport of the American frontier. Um, of the working class of the American frontier. Yeah. That's my understanding. So, yeah. So, so there's, there's a funny corollary with that, uh, not corollary, that's the wrong word, but there's a funny parallel with that with Okinawan karate. Yeah. Um, the very striking based, the very clean striking based Shorin Ryu yeah. is uh, more uh, upper class at the time where it comes into existence, whereas the, uh, the, um, the Goji Ryu, which is, um, has more grappling in it natively um, is uh, lower class. And the, the conditioning is also famously much more intense on the body hardening and all that stuff. So that is a lo- lower class. That's the working class people. They did more of the Goju Ryu stuff and the upper class people did more of the uh, Shorin, Shorin Ryu. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You don't want to get too sweaty. <laughs> right. Too close to somebody else's body. Right? That's the other thing. Yeah, staying away. <laughs> One second. Um, so back to, you know, categorizing kind of modernist martial arts. We, we have 
this sense that it, you know, it's like, I, I've thought about this in, in regards to my own work. It's like, it'd be so much cheaper. It'd be so much easier to make money if I could line 60 people up in a line and have them all do the techniques that I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. Right. But like creating that opportunity for the individual to really attune to the environment inherently means that I can't handle as many students. Yep. So there's, there's something about the, the, the commercialization of the martial arts as well that's happening there. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea of, of like creating the perfect punch, like, you know, the athlete who is going to fight best is the athlete who has the best looking punch. And then the idea that you can understand that at a mechanical level and you can describe that mechanically. I was watching um, uh, a famous uh, YouTube personality who's a karate guy teaching an Aikido guy how to punch. And he was cueing him to pack his shoulder down and feel his lat and point yep. his elbow at the ground. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is all internal cues. Yep. And He's learning to structurally punch, but he's not learning to, to, he's not really actually even learning to attune to the information from the environment, which would specify whether that punch was landing hard. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, fundamentally, when you punch something, there's kind of two things you want. You want it to hit the thing that you're hitting hard and you want it to not hurt you when you do it. Right. And then you want to be able to land it on somebody who's moving and trying to avoid being punched and trying to punch you back. Right. But like, if you're just looking at the mechanics of the punch itself, you want it to actually land hard. Yep. Without hurting you. So that's that, that's what I see as the kind of the problem of, of the traditional martial arts is you do a lot of, a lot of drilling uh, a lot of these forms that have maybe some impact as, as a choreography that develops a human being, but don't have a lot of specific martial significance. Um, and there's just so much artificialness to the way that people move. Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's, a, it's amazing. You know, there's all these footage of, of, uh, of like martial arts masters who get to, to like fight. And then you see like when they're not in contact they're doing Wing Chun. And then as soon as they're in contact, their <laughs> arms are just milling around like, yeah. like, like middle schoolers fighting. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so then the UFC happens and you can see that like some kind of Randori, because essentially what BJJ has is what judo had Randori, but then BJJ focuses on, uh, Nuaza, right? Which is the groundwork as opposed to the, what's the term? There's the atemi, which is the, the, the striking. And then what's the throws? Oh, uh, is it, I don't know if it's Tewaza. I think, um, I think Tewaza is the uh, a class of throws. I don't think it's the throwing in general. Okay. But anyways, so judo builds a, a rule set, a constraint set to mm. promote throwing which I actually think is kind of brilliant because I think people really underestimate how much hitting someone with the ground <laughs> is a very, very powerful yeah. martial system. Um, there's 
other problems with judo, but I think I think that actually something has been lost in the value of the throw in the translation to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and in MMA, mm-hmm. where we we're pro- the ground is built to protect you against the da- more damaging aspects of a throw. Mm-hmm. But uh, but then you get to BJJ and they have the ability to get you to the ground, which um, that's getting lost. <laughs> right. And then they have right. the ability to to control you when you're on the ground. And they develop that through lots of live sparring. And then you have the entry of American wrestling into this arena. And they're really good at getting people to the ground and holding them on the ground. And they get that all through the live sparring. But as I experience a lot of jujitsu, there's a lot of drilling that is just as kind of rote and unalive as what you have in 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 uh in karate a lot of times a class there's kind of like two halves to a class there's rote drilling and then there's yep. rolling, and they are often like almost unrelated and i feel yeah. like a lot out of one and not much out of the other yeah if you if you were to ask somebody is that training they'd say yeah it's all training it's all training but um i've noticed and it's happened in more than one school too and it and, it, and it's across language device because one instructor was brazilian and the other one was, was just an american and um they'll you'll do you got to put your reps in you know mm-hmm. you have to put your reps in yes. so you get your reps in and it comes time to uh do free sparring or free rolling or positional sparring or something that's more open um usually it's just rolling and they'll say okay now it's time to train yeah whoops so there's there's almost like there's almost like this there's this cognitive distance there where they actually intuitively understand this is the real training. <laughs> and then before that, all that's just your, you're dead. We're going through the motions basically. And it's a constant fight to get people to pretend in the doing of the rote repetition to, to pretend as if they're in a tiny snapshot, like in, you know, in a Japanese anime where, they're in the middle somebody's in the middle of some awesome move and yeah. everything slows down. And then you hear yeah. the internal monologue <laughs> and you get flashbacks and all of this happens within the yeah. span of this one punch that's happening in the, in the anime. It's like, uh, that's what you're being asked to do when you do these, um, these techniques is you're imagine you're in the real thing, but only within one second of it <laughs> where you're latching and sinking in the arm bar and leaning back, right? You're in the, you're in just this two second window of a roll. And so you have to treat it like that real two seconds. Uh, and so, and you have to treat it. And so everything you do has to be really, you know, tight and, and with intent and all that kind of stuff. And it's just difficult to maintain that in students, um, which is why their legs are always, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, if you're in the real role, the constraints of the role are what tell your body when you need to tense up on something and when you need to be tighter and stuff like that. And that's not present when you're doing your drills, your, 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 your reps as people often call them. Yeah. I like the idea of the way I think about it is like, you want to explore a kind of constraint space first. Mm. So you, 
we can say like, I want you to get control of that person's arm, right? Hold that arm and make sure someone can't get, can't, you know, can't get out. Right? And then you can, then you can isolate and look at, okay, this is the mechanics, understand this about the mechanics so that you're going to be able to control that better. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you go back, right. And you always want to be integrating, like playing mm -hmm. in a way that allows you to see the thing that you need to work on. Um, but always playing at a level where you're not, you're not bored and you're not repeating it. Like I was uh, in a class recently and we were just working on jabs, right? It's just like, we're going to spend 15 minutes, basically just jabbing, <laughs> just jabbing a pad. Right. And I'm guilty of that. Even as a teacher. Yeah. I was like, uh, you know, so I'm working with the partner I'm working with. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make you deal with me moving away and moving in and strafing side to side. So you have to try and handle these layers of complexity. And so it's always, for me, it's always about um, how do I, like, I want them to, you know, let's improve your jab. Good. Right. Let's, let's get the mechanics better, but you got to keep the types of things, you know, doesn't matter if you can do a perfect jab against a, a, a stationary pad, right? Like you got to be able to recognize like when someone's encroaching your space, when you have space to, to hit or how to hit when someone's encroaching your space, how to track somebody down who's retreating from you, right? Or somebody who's moving side to side, how to, how to hit those things. And, and you want to introduce that at a level that that, that athlete um, can adapt and, and adopt a technique that's sufficiently effective, right? And they're not mm -hmm. just getting lost in, um, I was reading an article by Marianne Davies and she was talking about this idea of, um, of, of snow, right? Like movement solutions that are unrelated to what you're trying to de develop, right? There's a point at which yep. things are so chaotic that there's just nothing emerging out of it that's actually, actually gonna work for you. So I want to constrain it enough that you're, you're kind of in those bounds. So I don't know. I, mean, I guess I'm just rambling here on my own. My yeah. Own, my, uh, my, my, own con my concern with uh, over constraining on that, that front is that there is a context to how you landed a punch. And there's a thing that happens after that. And none of that is represented in 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 uh, scripted sequences or pad work or mitt work or any of that kind of stuff, and um, you you never get practice understanding what an affordance looks like for how and when you can punch, and uh, you never get uh, one thing that I've been thinking about recently is um, the idea of fight IQ and uh, uh, understanding higher level skills higher order skills of taking in information um, that you've gained about somebody's fight behavior through the use of feints and uh, fakes and, uh, you know, just trying to work them with jabs and, and feigning kicks and just basically only engaging in exchanges to figure out what they're going to do instead of trying to be seriously um, taking them out before you have enough information that you make a real serious effort. And I was always told, I was always coached in class, you know, yeah, you got to feel them out and, uh, you know, bring in information. And, and I'd be like, yeah, 
cool. And I'd go in and I would do just random feints and stuff. And I never gathered the information because I didn't know. You can't tell somebody to gather the information. The only way for them to learn how to do that is to practice so much that they begin to pick up on those patterns. And then as they become more advanced, they, uh, rather as they gain more expertise, they in turn exploit that strategy uh, on a, in a more sophisticated way. You can't simulate that by showing somebody uh, uh, your map of all the different contingencies that you've experienced and try to get them to memorize them. You just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of, I've been having a lot of conversations around and for a long term, I've talked about John Verbeke's idea of uh, the four P's of knowing there's propositional knowledge, procedural knowledge, perspectival and participatory knowledge. Right. So mm-hmm. propositional is sort of like um, in boxing in, a, in an open stance, right? So Southpaw versus Orthodox you are in an advantageous position whenever you have the outside foot position. Mm-hmm. That's a proposition. Right? Yeah. Procedural would be something like knowing how to respond to the way the other guy moves, right? Such the, or like knowing how to step and get that step. Yeah. Respectival is like looking at like knowing, knowing all the different cues that will allow you to take that step into the space that'll give you the outside foot position. Mm -hmm. And there's no amount of verbal instruction that will ever give you that. Yes. Yeah. You can't, you can't read it in a book. You can't, you you only can become attuned to the environment of controlling outside foot position um, by getting, putting rounds in. Yeah. I think you've you touched on a difference between the way traditional martial artists approach learning versus um, an ecological approach, and that is that uh, they view they think that because they've come out the end, so people with expertise that in turn teach because they've come out the end with some knowledge about how things work, they believe that they can shortcut their students to their position through knowledge transfer, but learning is not knowledge transfer. Um, you know, knowledge transfer is like one guiding constraint within what learning is. Learning is an adaptation yeah. to representative stress and, and not um, knowledge transfer. It's, it's, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, knowledge transfer is, is the appropriate type of learning for some situations, right? But what, uh, Jordan Peterson, in his book, Maps of Meaning, has this beautiful uh, representation of the origin of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So all knowledge uh, originates from exploratory behavior, right? Mm-hmm. You try something and then it works or it doesn't work for whatever your goal set is. Mm-hmm. And then above exploratory behavior it actually has play, right? You now start adding variation to the behavior to see like what in that behavior is relevant to what you're doing or what other options you have to achieve the same, same response. Right. And like Jean Piaget was first person to represent the fact that children have procedurally correct knowledge of games before they're able to propositionally represent them. Yes. Yeah. Right. So then, so then you actually, you actually can't like, when, when a new thing is being discovered, 
it's usually not articulable. Yeah. It has to be done multiple times before it's then articulated. Right. But then once we have the articulate level, one, the, the sort of mistaken idea of, of teaching is that, that if I transfer my articulation of the knowledge to you, that you have all the levels that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, <laughs> like, I think of our culture as a culture that's become addicted to the proposition, right? Yes. Like you've, I'm, I'm sure that you have, you have uh, fallen down a Wikipedia um, wormhole <laughs> at least once in your life, right? Yeah, many times. <laughs> or a YouTube wormhole, right? Like yeah. most of what I was talking about with, uh, with, um, with, you know, the history of European martial arts. I mean, in some sense, there's like a lot of that you can only know propositionally because, because it's not happening right now. Right. You can't right. walk into a battlefield full of pikemen and, uh, and medieval knights. Right. So we are, our, our, uh, our knowledge of it is sort of, um, has been dropped to the lowest revol- resolution of, of only the, yeah. yeah. But, um, but that ultimately, of course, derived from people actually experiencing those situations. So uh, as a coach, I think there is a utility to offering guideposts, right? Like verbal information can help, uh, help an athlete know what to attend to. Right. Like, you know, um, Sean Mishka introduced me to the, the idea of uh, education of attention, intention, and calibration, right? Mm-hmm. This is fundamentally what we're doing. So you, so I, when I'm working with an athlete, my experience can help them say like, okay, attend to this, right? Though that can mislead them too. It can. Yeah. I've been right? thinking about that too. <laughs> yeah. Like, so I have like, okay. So I'm, if I'm in front of somebody and I'm sparring, I have a specific set of affordances. So I have really good vision, right? So that means that I may actually perceptually attune to that environment and be able to pick up specific information that somebody else might not. Mm-hmm. Like Justin Gaethje apparently doesn't have very good vision and his fighting style, I think is very much based on like adapting to a lack of vision, right? Yeah. He's, he's bullying in and getting kinesthetic contact in order to you know, initiate his striking combos because he, 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 he doesn't see the athlete that well in front of him. So uh, I could be wrong about this, but I think he actually got LASIK and his strata, he's actually adapted to his new affordances and now is a more effective fighter because he has those affordances. He was an amazing fighter before he had those affordances. Yeah. Still, like if I'm trying to teach someone who doesn't have the same perceptual capacities that I do and I don't recognize that, the information I tell them to attune to might actually mislead them. Yeah. It also, could be idiosyncratic. It could be unique to you. Yeah. Also, I have very long arms proportionally. So yeah. I have the ability to frame and get away from somebody um, and then take time to, to attune perceptually to something they might be doing that an athlete who doesn't have the length advantages that I have might not be able to do. Um, so, so yeah, so as a coach, I think we have to take much more seriously the idea that the information we give can actually interrupt the student's acquiring of the information that's relevant to them personally. Um, but we do, we do have some ability to extract principles, 
which then can guide their search strategy for mm-hmm. information that's relevant to them. Um, and we can tell them like w- what we can help them aim at what they should be trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we can give them constraint sets to play within that will help them calibrate effort to, to a specific system that's hopefully relevant to whatever task we're, we're aimed at. Is that, is that all accord with, with your understanding? Yeah, it, it definitely, like education of intention, attention and uh, calibration, like that maps onto the, the modified Newell's model of, of learning, right? So um, those are the stages that you go through as you become a more expert learner or more expert athlete in whatever it is that you're, that you're doing. Um, and uh, the, like the traditional approach tries to circumvent all of that by trying to instruct you into all of that embodied expertise through propositional transfer. Um, rather than designing practices where you, you are building into the practice that they are going to be forced to start developing or adapting to um, the perceptual landscape and to, um, you know, the biomechanical requirements of, you're talking earlier about how, uh, you know, I think that's Jesse Enkamp was teaching, teaching the punch, right? And that's a very karate way to teach the punch. And Jesse there's Enkamp. a lot of biomechanical, yes. yep. a lot of biomechanical um, ingenuity that goes into some of those methods that really maximizes the way you're able to recruit your muscles to deliver maximal force. But um, if it's decoupled, all of that falls apart in a dynamic environment. And uh, you almost have to, you know, I use the word relearn to me, the way I view learning now, I would say you would have to learn the first time around to throw that punch in a way that is conducive to um, an actual fight because you didn't learn three-fourths of all the skills you needed to use that punch in a fight. You only learned the biomechanical aspect of it. You didn't learn all the different perceptual and tactical aspects of it. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because as I was watching, like it did look like Rokas' punch improved. Right. Like his punch yeah. looks better on the Makiwara after the cues. Right? Yeah. You can see that he's landing with better structure. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I, I sometimes am not a hundred percent sure about um, if this is getting captured in the ecological constraints approach, the understanding of like, where, where does that fit in? Right. Yeah. Because sometimes it feels like, the way that it's described would indicate that there's almost no space for that kind of attunement, um, mm-hmm. that, it, that it's mostly just going to be counterproductive. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think there are elements of things that we can propositionally transfer that will really help the athlete with that, uh, with that education. Um, but, yeah. I, you know, I think like something like, how do I externalize those cues? Uh-huh. You know, if like you've seen some of my conversations with Nick Winkleman, right? Like mm-hmm. rather than cueing that I want that lat pulled down, I don't, that cue, there's, there's good reason to think that cue is going to disorganize a lot of things about the performance if we're looking for power, right? Mm-hmm. 
but something like, you know, have that athlete put their fist on your hand and push into the athlete's hand and have them be aware of where the force is transferring through their body. And can mm. they get into a position that's allowing them to more effectively get the force from their foot through their back into your hand? Mm-hmm. That to me is going to achieve the thing that, that Unkept does achieve to some degree, but I think he achieves it at a cost. It's not necessary. Yeah. It's a Stuart, Stuart Armstrong. I don't know if it's called this in the literature, but Stuart Armstrong calls that the, um, the performance, the practice, the performance learning paradox, paradox, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, what, what it's, um, that, that improvement is actually, um, you know, it, it might be a little bit too clickbaity to say it's illusory, but it doesn't persist. Yeah. The transfer from one practice to the next is uh, much weaker, sometimes non-existent compared to learning that emerges from a, um, an unstable environment. And Can so also- the improvement that you see there probably won't be there when, if you were to come and, and to hit the Makiwara two days later. Or more importantly, if you were going to actually try to hit somebody. And it would, it would totally disappear if you tried to hit somebody. Yeah. yeah. So you're, so yeah. So this is the problem of like a, what they call the, the session result versus the learning result, right? Yeah. You, you can, you can, there are certain things that will help an athlete move better in a session that seem to be very, very low transfer just from session to session. Yeah. There are other things that have higher transfer session to session, but have less visible transfer within a session which is really a a kind of a a head scratcher for a coach because you're generally going to pay attention to the um the most visible sign right yeah looking for change and if that's what you show to the stakeholders which you show to the parents which you show to the student so look i improved yeah (laughs) or just to yourself right like you're you're if you're just naively like anyone who's going to coaching should have some level of just empiricism, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to see that what I do results in a change in behavior. That's in the direction that I want. Um, so, so if you don't have a model for how skill, like for me, it, it was, I had to build a model basically, and then expose my, my, my coaching model to a new environment and have it break in order to see in order to see it in a new way. Mm-hmm. Like that's what, that's what sort of opened my eyes. Yeah. Um, and I think like, unless you have some understanding of this motor learning um, or maybe like a do, deep attunement through play and through this, I think it's, it's, there are kind of traps along the road of coaching where some things are going to be obvious as ways to improve that actually aren't going to be optimal kind of local optimist. Yeah. Yeah. It's if I, if that's one thing I could teach to every coach everywhere, especially in the traditional martial arts, it's that you, you cannot judge improvement based on what you observe online during practice. You have to test if it reemerges in later practices. If it does, then real learning has taken place. There is actual development going on. It's, it's, um, not, um, you know, it's not, it's not illusory, right? It's not, uh, I'm trying to reach for a different word, but it's not coming. And, um, that's the biggest thing for me is, is, and for me, it, 
it comes down to other, it's involved with motivation as well, because I know that um, when I was on a different model of, of learning and I looked at improvements in practice as evidence that improvement was taking place, when I saw a student not perform to that level in the next two practices, I thought there was a failing on the, on the student's part. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time that I was really failing the student because that's not true. It's not human, not how human learning works. It's not how the, uh, the education of attention and all that stuff works. And, um, so I was sabotaging the motivation of my students by making it into, uh, an issue of, uh, of them not trying hard enough or being lazy or, or not working hard enough. You can't measure that based on technical competence because that stuff is nonlinear. It's up and down based on what you're doing in practice. Uh, and it's often um, short-lived. <laughs> it's, uh, and um the only things that you can know is when is after over time, a behavior persists over time that, that is consistent where you have, I guess you would maybe call it a metastable range of performance. That is real learning. That is a real gain in skill. Yeah. And you have to recognize that there's a lot of reasons why somebody would seem to regress that that has nothing to do with being lazy or losing skill or losing knowledge or something like that. Absolutely. The idea of nonlinear learning is really important for people to, yep. to recognize, right? That you're yeah. that you're going to you're going to have periods of rapid change. You're going to have periods of stasis, and you're going to have periods of regression. Sometimes, in order to mm-hmm. to make the next step forward there's something that has to change that's going to destabilize performance for a period of time yep so we've opened a lot of doors and i feel like <laughs> i feel like I feel like there's a lot of things that we could try to finish um and i don't know that we can um but so i think you know this is probably a good place to stop for for this this uh, this conversation i think yeah. just that little bit of of an idea around you know what to pay attention to as a coach Mm-hmm. Is there anything final kind of summary that you'd like to give on on like where combat art coaching needs to go for us to improve as an industry or for for you guys to improve as an industry? I'm kind of in the liminal zone of that. <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is just because you can come up with a logical rationale for why it is that you do a drill and why that drill will work does not mean that it will work that way. It doesn't mean that's how it works empirically. Um, so just because you have, you are married to an explanation that sounds great does not mean that's how it actually works. So don't be blinded by um, this, this uh, infatuation with your own rationality. Uh, you need to look at, um, you need to look at the actual behavior that, that comes from your students and uh, find ways to control so that you can understand where you might have biases or where you might be making an attribution error or something like that. Yeah. Rationality can be very misleading when it's not tied to empiricism as well. Yep. 
Absolutely. Um, and the right empiricism is really important. Right? Yeah. Like knowing what to look at and when to look at it in the development path. Yeah. So um, for folks who are interested, I actually didn't even know until t- this morning when I was kind of doing some research that you actually have a podcast of your own. Yes, I finally got onto Rob Gray's podcast and did not plug my podcast. So, uh, <laughs> Combat Learning Podcast is the is the podcast that I that I run. Do you have any other projects the audience know about? Um, I am reopening to teach Taekwondo in uh, I think January, okay. and it is going to be an entirely constraints based approach approach to sport Taekwondo fighting um, with a little bit of kickboxing and boxing kind of uh, sprinkled in there for diversity, but mostly oriented towards um, Olympic Taekwondo. So it is, uh, uh, at least in the beginning, there's going to be no Pumse, no Kata, no one steps. It's all going to be constraints based, play-based uh, training. Okay. Very cool. And where is that? Uh, there's a YouTube channel up now. It's there's, there's, you can go to shockwavetkd.com. There's not really anything there because I'm still setting everything up, but that's where it will be housed once things are in full swing. And are you going to be teaching online or do you have a, a physical location? So it's going to start as a physical location. And where's that's what it's going to location? be? Yeah. And, and I'm going to document things online for other people to look at and learn from. Um, I don't know if I'll do an actual training program for people, but if people want to follow it and do their own, like set up training pods and get you know get partners and stuff uh that's awesome but um it's going to be mostly open source constraints led approach to taekwondo that anyone can cool copy and where where in the world is your school going to be so people uh matthews north carolina (laughs) okay matthews north carolina so if you're you're in north carolina in that area then you know where to find the school so josh uh it's a pleasure um, really enjoyed our chat and uh, look forward to, to future chats. Yeah. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. Hey, you've reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But adios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.